Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters, a podcast about blood cancer from Leukemia Care. So I'm joined today by Zach. Hello. Nicole. Hello. And Kate. Hello. Um, and we thought kind of last minute that we'd talk about CAR T, um, which you might have heard quite a lot about in the media, on the news, in various places recently, which is why we're covering it again, even though we've covered it before in Facebook Lives briefly. Um, so guys, uh, guessing you're probably the best people to answer this, but what is CAR T? Do, do you want to start that by okay, can do. briefly... Explaining for everyone what CAR-T is. Okay, so CAR-T therapy is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, to give it its full name. Um, But what that actually means is essentially taking T-cells out of a person, uh, genetically engineering them so that they're able to recognize cancer cells and then infusing them back into the patient. Um, that can be done in different ways. So that can either be taken from the individual person. You can either take their own cells or you can use donor cells, much as you would do in some forms of stem cell transplantation. Mm-hmm. So how is it different to transplant then? Because I think most, most people would have heard more about transplants than they would have heard about CAR-T. Well, up until recently anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the difference with T-cells is it's quite interesting scientifically. Um, so the concept, and they're doing this with other types of cells as well, is it's about teaching the immune system. So the T-cells are used in fighting as part of the immune system generally. Um, and what they're doing here is they're essentially saying these cells at the moment can't recognize the cancer cells. And it's about teaching them how to recognize these cells. Because at the moment, the immune system says, okay, so it's cancer, um, something going wrong. But it can't tell that it's not just a normal part of the body cell. Um, so it's about teaching them, where, basically picking markers on the outside of the cell surface and saying, this is a cancer cell, there's something wrong with this cell, and we want you to get rid of it. So who and what is it currently used for? Well, what it's currently used for in clinical practice is a very different answer to what it's being studied in trials. Mm. Um, So at the moment, it's available for two different populations in the UK, and there's also two different types of CAR-T therapy currently on the market. The first one is a drug called Kimraya, which is manufactured by Novartis, and its proper name is Tisogen Lecleucel T. Um, and I don't know why I said that, because now I'm going to have to try and say yes, Carters as well. <laughs> <laughs> but so Kimraya is used for two different groups. The first group is uh, called pediatric ALL. So that's people with ALL up to the age of 25 um, who've had two or more therapies beforehand that haven't been successful. So it's quite end stage at the moment. Um, Kimraya and also another drug called Yes Carter, which is made by a company called Kite or Gilead, and it's called... You're avoiding saying the whole name. <laughs> I'm not. It's called Exicaptogene, um, and I can't, I'm not going to try and say the second half of it because I keep mispronouncing it. Um, and that is both of those, Kimraya and Yescarta, are used for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and again, that's used um, later on in the pathway as well. So there's all kinds of CAR-T therapy in studies at the moment, mostly for blood cancers, but also for a couple of solid tumours. Um, but those are further down the pathway at the moment, whereas the first two that I've mentioned are already available in parts of the UK. So before we bring in the other two, um, you talked a bit about the positive. So it's being used in a couple of patient groups already, and it's all very exciting. But there are a couple of issues with CAR-T that mean it's not gone much further. Could you just elaborate on what those might be? 
Um, yeah, so um, well, I suppose we haven't really talked about the positives of some of the really strong data that's out there at the moment. Um, but a couple of things to mention at the moment is, firstly, the uncertainty. So this is, at the, at the moment, it's early-stage data. We have seen it come through clinical trials. We've seen it licensed. We've seen it reimbursed. But it's on fairly limited numbers of patients at the moment. Um, so although the science is really promising, and it's obviously good enough that we are using it and reimbursing it, um, in terms of using it in a bigger patient population at some point in the future, at the moment the science hasn't been done and there are clinical trials ongoing. Um, so we do need more information on that. There's also a couple of side effects that are worth... I mean, all treatments have side effects, and it's quite an intensive treatment, so unsurprisingly it has side effects. But the two big ones to look out for with CAR-T therapy are firstly something called CRS, which is cytokine release syndrome. And what that means is essentially when the cells are being killed, they release cytokines as a result of the cell death. Um, and because of that, these cytokines are released into the bloodstream and basically they can gather and patients experience a very, very severe form of flu. Um, it depends. I've heard suggestions that actually the, the CRS is evidence that the CAR-T is working, which may or may not strictly be true. Um, but it does seem to indicate that some kind of action is going on before the tests are done to find that out for sure. Um, but it's, it can be really, really severe. It can, I mean, essentially bedridden for a, a period of days. Intensive and care. Well. Intensive care mm -hmm. if it's really severe. Um, it is manageable. There's a drug called tocilizumab, mm -hmm. um, which essentially can be used to reduce um, CRS. And they're more worried about more serious CRS than they are just kind of, well, I don't want to get into the different grades of side effects. It's probably a whole separate podcast for itself. But mm -hmm. essentially, if you're looking at the clinical trial data, you should be looking at grade C, grade, grade three CRS. Um, and then the second major side effect that's worth looking at is something called neurological toxicity, um, which is to do with the brain functioning. Um, and basically to help monitor this, um, most of the CAR-T trials are doing handwriting tests and memory tests to try and work out essentially does your handwriting change over time so they can identify changes in your brain functioning. Um, these are all things that if it's obviously a relevant treatment option will be discussed with your healthcare professional. Um, but the thing, the big point at the moment is hugely scientifically interesting, but very late stage patients at the moment and also not that much data. So you're saying it's late stage patients that are getting access at the moment and that are being explored the most, um, but it has sort of become a, a hot topic at the moment at scientific conferences and in the media, and I guess this is where I bring in the other two guys. Um, because of that, it, it is on the radar of a lot of patients who it might not be relevant for. So I thought we'd start with you, Kate. We're going to move on to talk about the recent documentary, but what were your? Did you know anything about CAR T? Was it on the radar? And what were your? If you did know about it, what were your feelings about it? Do you think I'd heard about it? I think there was a story. If I'm right, I might be wrong. Of a little boy um, who they were trying to get the therapy for. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember seeing that, um, and obviously any news article that links to blood cancer might is kind of pick up. I think, oh, what's that? You know, have a little read. Yeah. But I didn't really know much more than that. Um, so yeah, I won't talk about the documentary now, but before I'd seen that, I didn't know very much about it. I just, I'd heard of it. Mm -hmm. And if someone had said to you, there's this new treatment and if nothing else works, you might be able to get it. Obviously it's not actually available for APL patients yeah. at the moment, but if someone had 
put it to you, knowing what you know about the side effects and things, what do you think your response would be? It depends. Yeah, I mean, it depends what what state you're in when you're offered it, I think. Um, I was in a similar position throughout my treatment. Um, I was lucky enough that there were treatment options available, but not all of them so appealing. So I knew like some of the treatments that I were available to me had bad side effects. Um, and it was a tough decision. It's really hard. Whenever you're going through that that form of treatment, so intense, you know, that you need to make a really um, measured decision and you don't mm-hmm. have time. It's not on your side usually. Um, you're yeah. feeling unwell at the time of making that decision. Um, so, yeah, I think, yes, I would probably go for it. Um, having been through a stem cell transplant myself, would I go through another one? I don't know because it's it's you see it on the same same level as a stem cell transplant. I see it, yes, I suppose. I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know enough about it, but um, yeah, the side effects of a stem cell transplant are pretty awful or can be, and it might not work. So, yeah, I think. Would I go through it again? Probably not. But if I hadn't have had it and I knew that the illness was going to get me, would I think about CARTI? Yes, I would. Interesting. So, I guess from the charity side, what do you think patients knew about CARTI before the recent sort of uphype? Either of you two want to um, give an opinion on that? I think before the documentary from what I can see like look at doing the newspaper reviews and stuff yeah a lot of hype headlines without a lot of explanation behind the headline but while it, a lot of it is very exciting mm-hmm. there is a lot more to consider than just this wonder he- headline that it is a you know they all throw out the big c word not cancer it's the cure word you know miracle cancer cure yada yada there's a lot more to it than this it, it, and I think documentaries actually highlighted just how extreme this sort of treatment is. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds great, great, and if the data proves to be what, what it could be, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. But there is a lot of um, you know personal sacrifice to get to that point, to go through what these people are going through, to, to basically to have a chance of living is huge. It's mm-hmm. a gamble at the minute. It's very much rolling the dice for some of those people. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things particular Bacardi from the media is we haven't been talking about some of the specifics here so you you don't see a this is for acute lymphoblastic leukemia mm-hmm. um, after two prior therapies mm-hmm. for example you hear yeah. potential cure for leukemia because yeah. the science is so interesting yeah. um, and that's something that happens quite a lot in the media of you make a story make sense to a wider audience the problem with that is obviously where it's not actually appropriate we've had questions um, and I don't just mean people with, for example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where it doesn't meet their setting. I mean people with other different types of leukemia asking questions mm. where there isn't even any CAR-T therapy data at all. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is it's actually been really interesting. You mentioned this earlier, not just in the media. So even in the scientific community, you go to any of the key scientific conferences um, and I remember going into the session at the European Hematology Association conference, not mm-hmm. this year, last year. Oh, okay. Um, and you couldn't get in the room to a session that would normally, it was an industry session and it would normally not 
have anybody <laughs> that fast to go in. You yeah. couldn't even get into the overflow area, never mind into the room, because the clinicians were so interested in talking about the data. Um, whereas actually, at the moment, we're probably talking about 70, maybe 80 patients a year in the UK receiving either of these therapies. So it's, it's absolutely tiny numbers of the 34,000 people diagnosed with blood cancer every year. Um, it's That kind of puts it into context. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the science is hugely interesting, and that's why everyone wants to talk about it. Yeah. And the potential for the future is great, but I think it's probably worth yeah, maybe taking away some of the hype and thinking about where we're at now rather than where we might be at in five, ten years' time. And I guess our message to people listening isn't not to ask us about CAR-T and if it's relevant, because obviously we're happy to take questions. It's be patient with us if our response has to be, it's not relevant for you yet. And don't, I don't, know, don't take that as us being cautious. It, it literally is at an early stage. Is that, do you think that's the correct message from what you yeah. just said? Well, and the thing is, and the thing is, as I said, it's reimbursed in a couple of different indications at the moment. But actually, there's lots of trials going on at the moment, um, and there's nothing wrong with clinical trials. Clinical trials are how we learn more about the science. Um, but it must, it needs to be an individual decision as to are you going to go with the drugs that are already on the market for which the science has already been done, mm. or are you going to go with a clinical trial? Um, if there's one appropriate for your indication. I mean, it's too difficult a thing to say, kind of broad brush here. Um, but if there are clinical trials for your particular type of leukemia in your setting and you meet the exclusion criteria, it may be a decision worth having. And I'd probably suggest having a conversation with your hematologist about that um, rather than necessarily thinking CAR-T is always going to be the answer. At the moment, it isn't. Yeah. Whether it is for the future, we don't know yet. Mm. And we'll come back to the what's reimbursed versus clinical trials in a bit. But I just wanted your thoughts on something that I thought while everyone else was talking, Kate. Do you think some of the the hype around the fact it's a potential cure can cloud people's judgment as to the side effects sometimes mm. versus something that might not cure people, yeah. but it's just intended to yeah. extend life a little? Yeah, I think any treatment for cancer if you tout it as a cure is kind of a bit dangerous really um and you're all told when you're diagnosed or in remission after treatment they say you know give give it five years that's when we can say that you're properly kind of cured if you like Mm -hmm. so I think it's kind of dangerous to say that but then thinking about it when you were just talking you know god if I was in a position where the treatment had come back um sorry the illness had come back and treatment was not really available of course you clutch at anything mm. wouldn't you you'd hear carty you think right yeah. that's for me then so you're gonna get people asking questions about it i know i would yeah um yeah so i can totally understand people are desperate sometimes when you're in that position so you just want to find anything that can help yeah. um which is sometimes where the media is a double-edged sword isn't it it's mm. great to hear about these new trials but at the same time, it gives people kind of false hope because they think it applies to, to their leukemia because they're just the umbrella term of a cure for leukemia. Mm-hmm. Or a cure for cancer. Even. Yeah, exactly. It's quite, yeah. But I can t- I can understand both sides of it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think, it, so the, the data on Cotty is still so new that it's not actually being promoted as a cure. I think the term they normally use is potentially curative. 
Is, I don't need to comment because that's what I was going to say. I thought you might be going to say that. So when that's interpreted as a cure by the media, that's got to be, you know, something we should maybe try and encourage the media not to to understand a bit more about what is a cure and what is remission in the context of leukemia. Well, I mean, try, agree, but... trying to get anyone to decide what's a cure is an interesting concept in itself. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there is no definition of cure. Most people would take it as you're not experiencing any symptoms and you're free from ev- any evidence of disease. Mm-hmm. Um, in the CML space, there's a heavy debate about whether being off treatment or being on treatment makes a difference as to whether or not you're cured. I mean, we won't go down that road today because we're talking about car tea therapy. Um, but certainly, I think cure's a word that everybody has to be very careful with. And I would say beyond the media, I haven't seen that many people saying it's a cure, but certainly potential cure is a, is a word that gets thrown about. As, is this yeah, Is this the potential cure for all types of cancer at some point? The media quite often are commenting. Um, I mean, we definitely don't have the data. It definitely isn't that at the moment. Um, is it for the future? The problem is nobody knows. The science hasn't been done yet. Yeah. Um, and the way these work, CAR-T is one example of a cell and gene therapy. There are treatments like this outside of cancer. Being, I think at the moment something like 275 different types of cell and gene therapy currently in clinical trials, of which over 100 of them are different cancer types. So there is lots of really exciting science going on at the moment, and obviously there will be people receiving these as part of the clinical trials. Um, But most of these trials are tiny numbers. The phase one trials quite often have less than 20 patients in them. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's not get too excited. Well, I don't know. That's just my view. Maybe for the next 10 years, we're looking at the science as interesting and applicable to some populations um, rather than what people hope it might be in the future. Yeah, okay. So I guess the reason why we've started talking about today is the documentary from the BBC that we saw. Um, and it's called War in the Blood, in case anyone hasn't seen it. And it follows two patients. Um, I believe they both have ALL, am yeah. I? Yeah, both have ALL. Um, one slightly older than the other, but they both are undergoing CAR-T, different types of CAR-T therapy. But I think Personally, I think that's largely irrelevant to their stories, but unfortunately, um, it doesn't work for both of them, and they both pass away by the end of the documentary. Spoiler alert! Yeah, sorry about spoiler alert, but I think it wouldn't make sense <laughs> for us to talk about the documentary unless I explain the whole thing. Um, so, I guess I want to start with initial thoughts from everyone on the documentary from our each unique perspective. Obviously, okay, you're a patient, so you've got a different perspective to the rest of us, but. Yeah, who wants to weigh in first? I want to start, as I I didn't stop going on about it after I watched it. So I watched it in the office the day after it was broadcast. Um, I actually found out in advance that they both died, which obviously made it easier for me to watch. I think I'd have been a bit more upset Mm -hmm. about the whole thing if I didn't know they died at at the end. There was a lot of articles about it telling me they died, so I was quite glad I went into it with my eyes open. I knew what was going to happen. Um, I don't... I think this is actually more, it was more of a documentary about a story uh, rather than some, I thought some of the science was good as in the explanations on CAR-T, mm. really good. Um, I enjoyed the stuff about 
the carers and loved ones. I thought that was really interesting perspective to actually see that every person's got someone else who's affected by this. You know, Mamu's, uh, Mahmoud had a really relationship with his mom, but you could see the wider issues. You know, he's 18. Do we tell him that he, you know, he's not in remission anymore? You, yeah. could, you could see the struggle there, you know, can we not tell him for one more day so he can live one more day thinking that he's in remission? You know, Graham, Graham had no, he felt like he had no choice but to go for this because it, unfortunately he was facing death. But I mean, both of them were, but he saw it very much as it's do or die on this one. I have no choice if I want, if I want to have that chance of living. So what they did was completely selfless to, to go through all that. I thought showing the side effects was good. I think it gave balance to the documentary of actually this is what it can look like. Yeah. Um, you know, I've read some stuff online. Some people wanted, wish they'd actually had the good news stories intertwined. I actually don't. I actually think that it, it wouldn't have been good for the... I think it's actually more about those two people's stories more than anything else. I mean, it was good they showed the balance at the end of the people who obviously are in remission, yeah. doing really well. But at the same time, we didn't want to have to keep chopping and changing. I think it helped as a story to keep it straight down the line. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was a really, really interesting documentary. I can see how difficult it would be for people watching it who'd been through similar experiences because it was very raw. Yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting to see blood cancer in focus in a long-form documentary as well, like 90 minutes long. If anyone hasn't watched it, it's set out 90 minutes from your day. Still on iPlay. I would strongly recommend a watch. But with a disclaimer that it is very real, like as in it's, it's warts and all. Yeah. If if you don't think you can watch it, don't put yourself through it because it's a really hard watch. I want to pick up on the first thing you said about the fact that the people do pass away, die at the end of the yeah. of the documentary, and they do show the good, you know, some people who are in remission afterwards, but. It's not. I was to say it's nice. It's not nice to see people dying, but it's it's kind of good to have a, a realistic perspective of blood cancer or just cancer in general in the documentary. I don't know if anybody else agrees. With that, oh, but blood cancer still is it the third biggest cancer killer in the UK, and that is the reality. And going on a trial like this, it's a big deal. They've gone they've gone into there. Some of it is some you know still unknown to to a point, yeah. and they've gone into it head on knowing that their end is not guaranteed. They have not guaranteed life at the end. Mm. And it was really, really interesting to see that, you know, the, the contrast of the ages. I don't know how many people would have picked up on the slight differences in the car T. So Graham, the older guy, received his brother's car T sales, whereas Mahmood received his own. I don't think that was really explained the difference on that. No. But I don't think they wanted to go too heavy into the science on that part. But it was... A different story from that perspective. Well, I think it was good to show the family, and a lot of the doctor-patient yeah. communication was very good. So there was a bit where the um, young lad's mom, I think she was obviously very positive about how things were going, and the doctor was very good to try and temper a little bit because I think she was very much in the mindset that he's already cured, mm -hmm. and he was like trying to bring it down a little tiny bit because he knew it's going to yeah. hurt regardless, you know, what the outcome is but to try and bring her levels down a little bit at that point, which I thought was really good. Yeah, some really interesting doctor-patient communications, how doctors think as well, like some of that level of guilt that they, they were feeling about how things might turn out for these people. But yeah, really interesting. I've not seen a documentary like that about blood cancer, and I thought it was an interesting start on karting. Yeah.
I agree. Anyone else have thoughts they want to add to that? I think one of the things Nicole picked out, but it's probably worth emphasising, is the impact on families. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you hear quite a lot when you talk with patients who've been through CAR-T is, and I've heard this quote from numerous patients, it was actually worse for my partner than it was for me. Um, and if you talk about, for example, the cytokine release syndrome, um, and Graham in the documentary did unfortunately experience pretty severe CRS. So if anyone is looking at this, it's probably worth watching that documentary to even get an insight as to what it could be like. Um, but during that period, you can in many cases struggle to necessarily know what's going on. Um, so talking to another patient and also his wife about CAR-T therapy, um, he says, yeah, it was significantly worse for his wife than it was for him because she was obviously very aware of what was going on, quite how unwell he was, and like these patients, it was on some of the earlier um, CAR-T trials, so knowing what was going on. Um, at the moment, we obviously know about CRS, yeah. and we also have drugs that can manage this. Um, he had but, one of those drugs, didn't he? And I don't think yeah. it really did much. No, it solved the CRS. Well, okay. reduced the impact of the CRS, mm. so it went away. The problem with some of these drugs is, does it stop the CAR-T from yeah. working? Um, and there's all kinds of different CAR-Ts in development at the moment to look at different ways of potentially turning CAR-T therapies on and off, so you don't need to reinfuse people. Um, they're all in trials again, so we don't know whether that science necessarily works yet. Um, mm. But that's the theory. These are the first of a series of CAR-T therapy. There are more in development that are looking to address all of the different problems. Yeah. Kate, did you want to weigh in from the... Yeah, I mean, it was... I didn't know the outcome. Um, I didn't really know what to expect, actually, of mm -hmm. the whole documentary, but I thought it was amazing. Um, I think the detail, the scientific detail was just right for from a you know a normal person's mm. point of view um i mean i obviously know more than, than a normal person would about blood cancer but i think they just hit the nail on the head it's very simple um ex explanations using the ping pong balls and things brilliant um so you kind of had an idea of it i think what i took from it it, it was quite traumatic i pretty much cried from start to finish I was the whole way through but because the, the treatment obviously is not the same as what I've had, but I've had many of the procedures that they showed. And yeah. the actually, biopsy. I was going to yeah. bring up the biopsy thing. And they showed it with a drill and gas and air and things. I don't get that. I get a corkscrew thing that they do manually. No <laughs> gas and air. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it was brilliant from that point of view, but also a bit sort of triggering. <laughs> you know, kind of left shaking. Um the thing that I did take away from it, though, yes, the focus on the friends and family, well, family, I suppose, just in this case, was, was good. Um, and the fact that, yeah, they did show the patients, you know, not just sat there having a, a selfie before treatment and then afterwards. It was a throughout the treatment, the side effects, you get the fevers. I mean, my goodness, they are awful. Um, and they're just never ending. So it's that side of things as well that I think was great that they showed. And also, you know, I realised that they, these two men were going into this having had a barrage of treatment before this. This was a last-ditch attempt, and so they were pretty much broken going into it. So it's, it's it was really, really amazing. I, I loved it, but, yeah, a lot of it I did find quite traumatic to watch, a little mm -hmm. bit triggering. Um, but do you think it's kind of important that everyone else 
gets to know a bit more about yeah, definitely, definitely, yes, mm-hmm. because you know having cancer and having cancer treatment is not just about going in and your hair coming out. And, you know, it, there's more to it than that. There's the fact you're on your own most of the time, in, yeah. a, in a room, on your own. You feel sick, you feel tired, you don't know where you are, you're disorientated a lot of the time, you're in pain. They also showed a lot of that, didn't mm. they? You know, it's painful. You might not be having surgeries and things, but it's painful what they put you through. So that was interesting, too, that that was highlighted. Um, and also the connections you get with your doctors. You know, you do. You yeah. do. I kind of like the relationship that they showed between the doctors. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that. You know, and good on them for going through it and for having it filmed because that's brave. That is so brave to do that. And for the families to allow it to be aired, you know, afterwards, Mm -hmm. having lost their loved one. Um, I just thought it was incredible. And I'm glad that it wasn't just a kind of a balance as in like some people survive, some people Mm -hmm. don't. It was, this is what happens. This is life, you know? It's a trial. Um, Yeah. And I think going back to the trial thing, I know when I was sort of, when I relapsed, I was looking for different treatments. A few people would say to me, why don't you just go on a trial? As if they're like just there, you know, available (laughs) for anyone. Well, there were no APL trials that I could go on. So it's, yeah, they're very specific uh, per cancer, aren't they? And per criteria, you have to fit the criteria. It has to be in your area, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I did think it was an amazing documentary, though. Yeah, really did. Picking up on the clinical trial thing, there was a quote I liked of Graham. I'm going to have to read it so I don't get it wrong. But he said, someone's got to go first or nothing gets done. Mm. And that's, I personally found that really moving, just like those words. But he's right, like, in one sense, but at the same time, who do we do these horrible experiments on and, and how... How do we persuade people to keep doing them, or should we? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a debate of its own, I think. I don't know if anybody wants to weigh in on that. Well, I, <laughs> I'll weigh on it. I had a really interesting conversation um, with someone called Bettina Ryle, who um, runs the Melanoma Patients Network for Europe. Um, and she's a researcher by background before her husband passed away from melanoma. Um, and we were talking about clinical trials. Um, and she said something which I really like. Um, she gets really annoyed when everyone says, oh, you just joined clinical trials to be altruistic. Um, there is an element of that behind it, and it was nice to see that kind of coming across, particularly from Graham in the documentary of, well, yeah, hopefully other people in the future will benefit from this science. But on an individual basis, most people's reason for joining a clinical trial is to find a treatment option that works for them. And there's nothing but wrong not with for the people in the future. Well, it's a, that's a nice additional benefit mm. if that happens. Um, and that's the purpose of, obviously, trials. That's quite nice. That's an altruistic thing to do. But the decision should obviously be what's suitable for you at the time. And if that creates useful data for the future, that's fine. Um, one of the things that, and this is probably my personal opinion rather than necessarily like an organisational stance, but if you're on a clinical trial that the treatment option isn't for you, in most cases trials are randomised between an arm that's being studied and perhaps a standard of care. If you joined a trial to get a particular treatment and you're randomised onto the different arm, there is no obligation to stay on that trial. Under the Helsinki De- Declaration, you can leave the trial at any point that you want to with no fallout. You're perfectly welcome to drop out of that trial, say this treatment isn't the treatment I want, so I want this other treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I mean, obviously the clinical trial data then doesn't get collected, but you're allowed to make the decisions in the best interests of yourself 
Um, and again, that's in the Health and Key Declaration. No other interest can take precedence over the patient's interest. And it shouldn't. It should never do. Yeah. Science, yeah. at the end of the day, is about individuals. It's not. I mean, it's nice to have all of this collective data. That's great. That's how we learn out whether science works. But the reason we do it is for individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be a bit of a balance between the two. But as an individual, you should never feel that you have to do something for other patients. Mm -hmm. You have to do the best thing for you. And you are given an option, you know, if the trial is available, you don't have to, to go on it. It's not like, you know, they don't force you down it. And you shouldn't feel guilty not to do no, it. No, no, no. Um, I know just the only way I can think about trials is when I had the arsenic treatment, obviously that was a trial at some point, not that far back in time. Mm -hmm. And the first few people they said that did the trial died because they got the arsenic too high. You know, the levels were too high. So people had to die in order for that treatment to get passed and, you know, all, all the processes it goes through to then come down to someone like me and it helps save my life. So it's like you can see the trickle effect and that's only in a few years, you know, so that's quite incredible. Um, yeah, so I can see why I get totally get Zach's point of, point of view. Most people go on it because they're pretty much most of the time with trials phase one anyway, been told there's no other options left. This This may save you, help save you, may not. So, of course, you're going to try it, but in the back of their mind, they must also be thinking, yeah, hopefully in the future, maybe this will help save mm. someone else. And, you know, in their case, as the documentary, it has, which is great, and it's continuing to do so. But, yeah. Mm. I think the good thing about this documentary is it's very easy for us to sit and read papers about people going, you know, numbers in trials. They are all people. They all like. They all have their own individual story, and that's, yeah. I think that's what it really showed. Is actually they weren't just two numbers on a, on a score sheet. They had lives and things that impacted yeah. on them, and they mm. impacted on other people. Yeah. They, they're more than just trial data. They were people. Uh, you know, they had their own story. They took part in this. I mean, the other thing is with the documentary when they started filming, the filmmakers didn't have a clue how this was going to turn out as well. It was very brave from from every single angle yeah. because it, it could have been a very different story. And how terrifying as a patient anyway to be told it's a trial. We don't know what's going to yeah. happen. You might yeah. get this yeah. side of it. You might get something else. You know, it's bad enough when you're on chemo and things that lots of other people have had. But if you're having something for one of the first people to go through that, that must be terrifying as well. You know, what on earth is going to happen to me over the next few days, weeks? Mm. I feel like the documentary could have been about any treatment really I think yeah. the clinical trials bit is the bit that I personally took away from it like what it's like to be they weren't they're not the first people to do it but it's still very very early I can't I personally can't imagine what it must be like to make that decision about something that there is hardly any information on it's just it's mad it's probably worth looking very briefly at what the different types of trials do as well yeah I mean so they were on something called a phase one trial which, depending on the trial, it wasn't in this particular case, but can be the first time drugs have ever been tested in humans. And that kind of trial is to kind of some some of the things Kate was saying, work out what dose actually works for patients, um, trying to find essentially the maximum dose that can be tolerated to have the most possible effect. But they're essentially trying to work out safety and efficacy. Is this kind of something people can put up with? Mm -hmm. Then phase two trials, you start looking at efficacy. Does this drug actually work? Um, in many cases, what, what's the survival like? What's sometimes quality of life, but not measured in phase two trials? And then phase three, um, if you do it in some rare conditions, phase three trials never happen because there's not enough people. 
but in theory a phase three trial takes this new treatment and compares it against an alternative treatment and says, is it more or less effective? Is it does it improve survival? Does it improve quality of life? Does it improve the number of patients going to complete remission? You can design them with whatever input point you want to measure, but the three different trials have very different perspectives. Um, and by the time you're looking at, say, a phase three trial, yes, it's a trial, but obviously there's a lot more known about a drug. Yeah. When you're looking at a phase one trial, like in their case, very few patients in the world have had that. So you know what the science says should happen, but you don't know. I mean, we can have trials like imatinib, for example. Some of the first people who went on the early imatinib trials, it wasn't being thought that they were going to still be here 20 years later. Um, but obviously they are. Um, whereas obviously other trials, you go on with an uncertain benefit. You don't know what happens and in many cases. Some of these people, unfortunately, pass away. Yeah. I think when most people think of clinical trials, they're thinking of the very beginning. Um, so maybe we should say to anyone thinking about going on a clinical trial, if, if you have concerns, then maybe find out at what level that clinical trial is. That might also help in, in decision-making. Um, yeah, there's lots of different things about clinical trials that I think people don't quite understand the nuances between them all. And also, particularly in cancer, clinical trials can be quite different from in other areas. So in some other areas, people measure how a drug works by measuring the new drug against placebo, which is essentially giving a drug that doesn't do anything, um, or a sugar tablet. Um, in cancer, that's considered unethical. Um, so in pretty much all cases, if you were going to do a comparator trial, you would take the new drug and you would compare it against the standard of care, what the best alternative treatment option is that's available. Um, so in that setting, if that's what's happening, there may actually not be that many risks from entering a clinical trial because in theory, you either get the new drug if that's what you're interested in or you get the standard of care. And and sometimes there's a choice as well as it being random. It depends on the trial, doesn't it? Uh, it can do. Um, most cases are randomised, but it theoretically can do. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is actually in clinical trials, there's quite a lot of evidence that your outcomes might be better in clinical trials because of frequency of measurement, of looking, obviously they're looking very, very closely at how you're doing and whether or not they're, they're looking for the data that's coming out of it. So they monitor very, very closely. And in most cases, these are in the expert centres. Yeah. Um, so clinical trials means a whole range of different things. Mm. So another thing that was kind of been coming about CAR-T more when it was first decided to approve it for the very few conditions that it is approved for um, is the fact it takes a lot of time and lots of resources to develop and it does actually cost quite a bit of money and it wasn't really addressed in the documentary the impact of that um, I keep coming back to Graham but I feel like because he was slightly older he had a different perspective on things to, to how my mood might have but he said um, he was worried about the fact they'd had to he had to be kept alive until December to be able to get this potentially life-saving treatment. So, it is, I don't know, do you think that could have been, could have come up a bit more in the documentary, that the CAR-T is quite a time, money, and resource-intensive procedure? Any of you want to come in on that? Okay, so that raises quite a few different points. <laughs> um, the first one in terms of time, um, so in that particular thing, I think they had capacity issues. Obviously, they were waiting until it was available that they could do that. Mm. And that is actually something that can happen in practice as well. They obviously have to manufacture these things on an individual basis. 
um, and you have to essentially wait for a slot for it to be appropriate for you. Even when that is appropriate, what they do is, assuming they're using your own T-cells, they take the T-cells out of your body, um, depending where the manufacturing facility at the moment, mostly in the US, they've got to be flown across the US, they've got to be appropriately engineered for you, and then they've got to be flown back to the UK before they can be infused. And there's a variety of different kind of things that need to go on in the hospital to make sure it's appropriate for reinfusion as well. But that takes time. Um, so regardless, with current CAR-T therapies, regardless of any other issues that are going on, it will take a while. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's only appropriate for people who are going to be well enough that they're well enough at the point it's reinfused rather than at the point that the cells are going to be taken out. Um, so that's worth something worth considering. Um, does anyone want to comment on that before I start cost? I think so. I that's a whole other topic. <laughs> I was just thinking, Kate, just, if you take yourself back to like, when you first relapsed and you're considering treatment options, do you think the fact that you'd have to wait and there's the potential for the disease to get worse in that time, would mm -hmm. that be a really, obviously it's going to be a difficult time, oh, but yeah. it, how, yeah. can you describe how that might feel? Can you relate yeah. to Graham saying, oh my God, I've got to be alive till December? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as soon as they say you've got cancer, whether it's a first time or a relapse, you're just like, get it out. You know, that's your first thing, thought. Um, and then you just want to, in a way, you want to run and hide from it, <laughs> or I did anyway. You just want to think, I just want to process this now, okay. Um, but I was lucky, if you like, in the sense that there was another treatment option available and they wanted to start it that day. They told me I'd relapse two hours later, I was having treatment. So, um, for me, it was quite intense. It was really, but I didn't really have a choice. It was just done. Um, but in terms of the arsenic, so that was for the intrathecal chemo, which is chemo into, into spinal fluid. Um, there was, I forced a, a bit of a delay because I wanted to go to my friend's wedding. Um, as bridesmaid, I just wanted to be normal for a weekend. So I delayed it by two days. And they said, mm, you know, they're a bit uneasy about it. But they said, if you come in the next day after the wedding, then we'll start the arsenic. You know, there's no time to delay this. So I can imagine, you know, from someone else's point of view, if you're being told, I don't know what the time scale was, a month or two maybe, you know, that you've got to just kind of keep going on treatment as well mm -hmm. until you can then have the big treatment. God, yeah, those two months or whatever time it is must be so nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think a delay, yes, I can understand why in CAR T there is a delay. Um, it's a bit like a stem cell transplant, though, especially if you're having a donors. You know, you've got to wait for mm. them to be harvested and checked and everything before they can go in. Even when you have your own, you're, you have to have them harvested and then sit and wait before you can have them back again. Um and for me as well, I had to be in remission before I could have my stem cell transplant. So yeah. I had to go through eight weeks of arsenic. And there is a worry throughout the whole eight weeks, well, what if this doesn't work? What if I don't get into remission and then I can't have the transplant? So that whole time you're kind of battling how you're feeling. Um, so, yeah, I think time is of the essence, obviously, in anything like this, but it is a worry. Yeah. And you wanted to expand on the costs, then? <laughs> Yeah, I think, well, costs, quite an interesting term. I won't go too much into pricing and value and all of those kind of things because it gets very, very complicated. Um, but I think there's probably two things that are worth picking up. The first one is about 
what do we mean by cost? So in the UK, we look at something called cost effectiveness, and that's essentially how much health gain do you get for the amount of money you're using. When you're talking about something like CAR T therapy or any of the kind of cell and gene therapies they're doing at the moment, it's quite interesting because you have to look at these are one-off therapies. So on that basis, they're a one-off cost. And if the data shows that they provide long-term outcomes, whatever that means that we don't know at the moment, then obviously the benefit from that is spread over a number of years. If you look at another cancer therapy where you're taking a drug every single month indefinitely um, over a short period of time, obviously the one-off high-cost thing where you have one infusion is going to be more expensive, but actually over a long period of time, potentially the continuous therapy is more expensive. Um, So it's quite difficult to say whether these things are. There's, There's one, for example, that was in the news recently, not for cancer, um, called Zolgensma, where it was the list price in the media is $2.15 million for a one-off infusion, um, and it was quoted as the world's most expensive drug. Mm-hmm. Um, if Again, so then there was a, loads of articles in Forbes. You can go and research this if you want. Um, but actually, if you look at the comparative treatment for the same condition, which is a drug called Spinraza, actually over a five-year period, Spinraza costs more money than Zolgensma does. So what is the world's most expensive drug is obviously a highly subjective term. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing to look at this is we have bodies in the UK that are responsible for doing this. So in England, NICE, in Scotland, SMC, in Wales, it's AWMSG. And their job is to work out whether these are a cost-effective use of NHS resources. And again, entirely personal opinion, I get really annoyed when something has been assessed and approved for the NHS and people, whether that's clinicians or anyone else, start saying, oh, but it's really expensive. That's not our job. That's not my job. That's not anyone else's job. That's NICE's job to say, should the NHS be spending this money? And once it's been approved, the costs become irrelevant. But that's the whole point of an NHS is that we have these drugs funded. We've said they're a good use of resources. Use them so that people can have the most clinical benefit. I agree with that. I don't think any of us disagree with that. The final thing I wanted to pick up on from the documentary was... Um, a little bit about terminal illness. So, Graham, I believe, made the decision not to try the third infusion of CAR-T, which, again, I can't imagine having to make that decision, um, especially the impression we got from the from the documentary was that they didn't have any other options. I don't, we didn't see that particular conversation. I don't know if it's actually strictly true, but obviously we know what happened in the end. So... I don't know. Do we think that was portrayed in a, in a way that would have had an impact um, on people? So I, I guess I'm thinking: Do we think that was portrayed sensitively? Do you think it would have helped others in that? In I think position, it, it I guess. started the debate about patients choosing like yeah. quality of life at the end because that was the, that was the pure it. reason that yeah. he did it. Was he said he couldn't do it again? He couldn't put his family through it. He couldn't put himself through it. Yeah. And he knew what was coming. He was very aware that, unfortunately, the end. this was the end for him, but he wanted to enjoy a glass of wine at home with his family, yeah. essentially, be able to have that freedom of choice to do it. I think it at least starts the debate on end of life. We don't talk about it enough. We, I think we come back to this every podcast. We don't every talk podcast. about it enough. <laughs> It is. Yeah. It's a fact of life. We it, it all ends the same way. This isn't a spoiler. This this is how it ends for everyone. Unfortunately, I've read a really good piece from a palliative care specialist who who actually 
had a real brush with death. And he said uh, 10 to 20% of the population will die without any sort of warning, so completely randomly. So for 80% of us, we, we will know, unfortunately, what will take our lives. So you could at least give yourself the foresight to, you know, plan what you want to happen towards the end. And I think he did exactly that. Mm -hmm. And you had the contrast with Mahmood when his family were told that he'd come out of remission, unfortunately, that his mom, I don't know, I completely understand why, didn't want him told straight away because mm -hmm. she didn't want him to know that day. She wanted him to spend that day in blissful, blissful ignorance for one more day longer that he was fine. Mm -hmm. And I, I totally get why she did that and he was her baby no matter what he might have been 18 but he was still a baby yeah and it was terrible because she she feels that pressure on her as well to try and shield him from the inevitable at that point yeah. which was but it starts the debate i think it, we are slowly starting to see people talking more about end of life and how do people want their end of life to look like if they have a choice how could it go yeah, yeah i agree and it's very easy for people to say you know, why, why aren't you doing it again? Why aren't you trying what, you know, and have another transplant and have another party? But unless you've been through it yourself, you don't realise how horrendous it can be. For a lot of people, it's quite a traumatic experience. And I know after I had my transplant and it didn't quite go to plan, didn't quite work as well as they'd hoped, and there was talk of me having another one, like within a few months, I said, no, I was like, I'm not having another one, that's it. You know, and my, a lot of my friends thought I was crazy, like, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you just, come on, just have another one, it could work. But you don't realise the emotional, physical toll it takes on you. So I can totally understand if somebody's in that position to just say, no, actually, I want to live my last few days, being able to live in a way that I'm in control of instead of in a hospital going through a really horrible experience again mm -hmm. um so i totally get that and i think it's brilliant that they they showed that on the documentary and it is opening up the space for people to talk about death and why yeah we say a million times every time on the podcast why don't we talk about it happens to everyone well, it's fine because we do now we talk we about talk it all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> mention it next time as well. <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah 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 totally agree with that sometimes um, I think we've said everything there is to say about this documentary. Yeah, but we love it. <laughs> um, if anybody hasn't seen it, please. We I know we've spoiled it slightly. Um, we should put a spoiler alert on it, but um, it is still very, very moving. And I think we all agree that we want people to go and see it, regardless of who you are and what your connection is to blood cancer. I think it's got something for everyone to take away from it. Yeah. And I put I posted about it on my social media and mm. people that I know that have got leukemia through social media across the globe, America, a lot of them were saying, Where can I find this? Why can't I see it? You know, so hopefully it'll go over there too and they'll be able to see it. But they're really interested in it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of interest around it. Um yeah. It's a good documentary. I rambled on for long enough about it. Yeah. Um I don't want to delete the message by talking about anything else, I don't think. I think it's been really, really nice to talk about talk about this with you guys. But I just wanted to mention next podcast. We're going to be talking about um, our early diagnosis campaign, Spot Leukemia. 
because um, Black Cancer Awareness Month is September, and we should have launched the whole campaign by the next podcast, so we'll have plenty to share with you then. So um, if anybody wants more information about the campaign, um, please do get in touch with us, um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk, or call our helpline 08088 010444. See you next month.